Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we'll look at three different types of early C-130A missions, each of which demonstrated just how transformational the C-130 was for the Australian Defence Force and Australia. I'm your host, Bill Korolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. So to get started, we're going to look at three areas today, and cumulatively, they gave the Australian government, its citizens, and military planners a good sense of just how much more capable air mobility was with C-130s in the inventory. We'll cover the very first humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission, which took place in the aftermath of 1959's Cyclone Amanda. Then we'll have a look at an around-the-world mission called Operation Eastbound, And we'll finish up by looking at a few examples of search and rescue missions. One successful and one not so successful. Let's get stuck into Cyclone Amanda. This was a Category 3 cyclone that struck Port Via in what was then called the New Hebrides and is now called Vanuatu. Category 3 means that that cyclone had winds of around 120 to 160 kilometers per hour or 100 miles per hour. Amanda hit Port Via on the 28th and 29th of December 1959, causing major damage and leaving half its 2,500 residents homeless. The damage was extensive and exacerbated three days later when a second storm, Brigitte, not quite cyclone strength, also struck Portsvia. At the time, New Hebrides was governed in a shared arrangement between Britain and France, with French military assistance already being provided from Numea in response to this disaster. Britain sought to balance French influence in the region by seeking Australian support. Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Relief is commonly referred to by its acronym HADR in modern times. However, it wasn't considered core Air Force or Australian Defence Force business back in January 1960. It was unusual for the time to be tasked to do an HADR. But due to the strategic influence it garnered with Britain, Australia agreed to send army engineers to help in the reconstruction effort. While it looked like a simple transport task for the RAF, everyone was about to learn some major lessons about the C-130. In this case, it took six days to approve, plan, and organize Australian assistance. Imagine the outcry if we took that long in today's world. Nevertheless, it was something new for the ADF and the RAF back then, so we'll cut them a bit of slack. On the 8th of January 1960, the mission finally got going. Squadron leader Berryman and his crew flew A97-215 via Amberley to Port Via, which is a bit over 1,000 nautical miles or almost 2,000 kilometers. That sort of trip would take a C-130 about three and a half hours to do, and they carried 30 army personnel, fresh water, medical supplies, and transport equipment. The next day, Flight Lieutenant Slater captained 213 to Portsvia, carrying additional medical supplies and more Army personnel, and he flew a second mission, which was the third to Portvia, delivering the final load of disaster relief supplies on 12 January. 
The Army engineers remained in Port Via for over a month and returned to Australia, of course, by C-130s on the 10th and 11th of February. This humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission was notable for a few reasons. Firstly, it was the first C-130A support of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT, in the near region. The strategic reasoning for the mission was imperial defense. Yet the mission garnered global accolades for Australia, particularly from the fledgling island nations and territories in the near region. And this mission gave the ADF and DFAT a taste of what the Hercules could offer. Secondly, the Army learned a great deal about C-130A capacity during the deployment to Port Via. Its 8th troop of 17 construction squadron planned their deployment and estimated they would need four aircraft loads. The C-130A had so much capacity that the entirety of the requested load and passengers was delivered in just two loads, leaving room for more equipment on the third mission. The soldiers also learned that the C-130A's air conditioning system was not quite perfect. The cold air it produced mixed with the humid conditions of the Southwest Pacific to produce a rain of ice-cold water inside the cargo compartments during the descent. That was a minor inconvenience compared to flying in a Dakota. And of course, those of you experienced in C-130s might have, on occasion, seen hail coming out of the air conditioning system. I personally have seen that a few times. A third lesson came from the landings at Via Field, which was the airfield at Ports Via, because this marked the first time the RAF operated a C-138 onto a grass runway. The runway at Via Field was built by U.S. Seabees during the Second World War. The Seabees were engineers. Being only 5,900 feet long, or a bit less than 2,000 meters, and made of grass overlaying coral, it was normally frequented by smaller aircraft, such as the Dakota, and it was not intended for use by large aircraft. When squadron leader Berryman arrived overhead via field, there were cattle on the runway, and he had to do a circuit so that the locals could get the cattle off the runway, after which he executed a maximum effort landing to ensure the aircraft stopped in minimum distance. And for those that are unfamiliar, a maximum effort landing is one in which the aircraft is stopped as fast as possible. So putting the engines in reverse very quickly, making sure it was a firm landing, and jamming on the brakes as hard as you can. By responding quickly into unknown conditions, such as a damaged airport with an unfamiliar runway, and a runway surface the crews were unfamiliar with, the C-130As and their crews demonstrated the amazing flexibility that would become the hallmark of future C-130 HADR operations. In the years before Vietnam became a focus, C-130As also conducted similar operations in places such as Grafton, Charleville, Coffs Harbor, and Bali. Many of the Workhorse's future podcasts will cover large-scale disaster relief missions such as Cyclone Tracy and the Indian Ocean Tsunami. Another momentous task was the C-130A's first around-the-world mission. Let's paint the picture for Operation Eastbound. It was October 1960. By then, 36 Squadron C-130As were becoming well-known for their versatility and improving reliability. And we'll talk more about maintenance on a future podcast. Australian involvement in the near region was reflected in tasking such as UN medical support for a cholera epidemic in Erie and Jaya, and many flights to Papua New Guinea supporting the Pacific Island Regiment. And we'll hear Bob Wheeler briefly mention that in a couple of episodes from now when we talk about Confrontazi and his experiences. Although more frequent, long-distance international engagement missions began to appear on the 36 Squadron Flying Program. One of the first major overseas tasks 
was in support of Nigerian independence celebrations, which were set to occur in October 1960. Nigeria was not of direct strategic importance for the defense of Australia, but supporting a fellow British Commonwealth nation was important with respect to Australia's relationship with Britain and therefore its imperial ties and imperial defense. This was not the first such international engagement mission for the RAF. Operation Westbound commenced on the 20th of February 1957 when three Lockheed Neptunes departed Australia to attend independence celebrations in Ghana, which were held on the 6th of March 1957. Before C-130As arrived in the RAF fleet, flying an around-the-world international engagement mission would have been difficult to coordinate and conduct with any degree of assuredness or timeliness. One of the Neptunes on Operation Westbound took 43 days to complete its around-the-world journey, partly because it was delayed due to an engine malfunction in the Azores, and it was 43 days because it took 11 days to get a replacement engine there. The Hercules was used as a stager to follow three Canberra bombers on their trip to Nigeria. The stager aircraft served a number of purposes. Firstly, and of great importance to the Canberra bomber crews, the C-130 provided an immediate search and rescue capability. If one of them had crashed, the C-130A would have dropped survival equipment to the Canberra aircrew. More practically, the C-130A carried maintenance personnel to fix and service the Canberras and the Hercules itself. The Hercules also carried spare parts, luggage for all personnel including the bomber crews, a spare Avon engine for the Canberras, a spare T-56 turboprop engine for the C-130, and the gifts to be given to Nigerian leaders at the celebration day. As an aside, those gifts included an hourglass for timing parliamentary divisions, a library of 200 books about life in Australia, and an oil painting which was painted by Sir William Ashton called Moonrise at Bradley Heads. It's amazing what we thought were good gifts back in the day, and you never know, maybe some of those are still around. In all, the Hercules carried 20,000 pounds of cargo on Operation Eastbound. Well, on the 14th of September 1960, Flight Lieutenant Edward Ted Radford, who became an Air Vice Marshal, by the way, departed Richmond in command of the C-130A stager. The route flown included stops at Fiji, Canton Island, which became known as Kiribati, Hickam, Hawaii, Travis, California, Scott, Illinois, Charleston, South Carolina, Bermuda, Azores, Malta, and then Lagos, Nigeria. And they stayed in Nigeria for seven days, and then they returned through Uganda, Yemen, the Maldives, and the Cocos Islands. With 20,000 pounds of cargo, the aircraft was pushed to its range limits. Some of the legs were close to 2,000 nautical miles, which is about 3,700 kilometers. And the leg from Hickam to Travis was over 2,100 nautical miles. This particular C-130A did not have external fuel tanks, and the plan called for every available drop of its 34,000-pound fuel capacity to make it from Hickam to Travis. That included counting on a little help from the wind, which normally would have provided a tailwind in that direction. But a surprise headwind out of Hawaii delayed the mission for two days, and in the end, the United States Air Force was called upon to help move about a quarter of the cargo from Hickam to Travis because they just couldn't do it. Demonstrating great flexibility, though, that delay was overcome by cutting short two planned layovers in the U.S. The RAF was the only Air Force that arrived in Lagos on time. The Royal Air Force and the Royal Rhodesian Air Force also attended, but they didn't quite make it on time. 
Most destinations on Operation Eastbound were still part of the British Imperial Network, and as such, transiting through places such as Fiji, the Maldives, Uganda, Yemen, and Malta helped reinforce the nature of imperial defense and British Commonwealth bonds. The U.S. relations were also becoming increasingly important to Australia's defense, and so the stops in the U.S. were also in Australia's national interest. Despite a tight schedule and long crew days, RAF representatives who were passengers and part of the C-130 crew took time to ensure they engaged with officials at some of these stopovers. For example, a memorial ceremony took place in Malta to honor the Second World War airmen who sacrificed their lives defending Malta. There's even some footage of that ceremony on the Australian War Memorial website. With the C-130A's speed and reach, the Around the World mission took just 24 days, seven of which were spent in Lagos, where all four RAF aircraft participated in the celebratory flying display. For the Hercules crew, the routine was fatiguing. In the course of the 17 transit days, the crew flew over 100 hours, and in the modern world, 100 hours would be a monthly limit, or close to a monthly limit. Their daily routine usually consisted of getting up before dawn, preparing for flight, waiting for the cameras to depart, and they had to wait for the cameras to depart, just in case one of the cameras broke so that the camera technicians could repair it. And they often landed after dark at their destination. And then they would just get up and do the same thing again the next day. Many of these nights resulted in only four to five hours of quality rest. From the mid-1990s, aircrew fatigue became better managed. This mission would not have been flown on such an arduous schedule in modern times. But in the 1960s, C-130 crews had a get-the-job-done attitude. And that pedigree was the basis upon which 36 and 37 squadrons operated for decades. The workhorse nature of the C-130A was readily apparent to all involved. And the strategic reach and speed it delivered on Operation Eastbound demonstrated what a game-changer the aircraft was for Australia. We'll do a little aside now on crew rest. Some flights, like Operation Eastbound, offered the crews little opportunity to spend time visiting local sites. Short trips often had as little as 10 hours rest programmed between leaving the airport and returning for the next flight. Many of those short stays were spent in military accommodation, offering little opportunity to explore the town. Short stops usually entailed meeting in the mess, maybe at nearby restaurants, or if they were in a hotel at the bar for a quick bite to eat, to drink, and then it was off to bed. Longer trips, or those transiting multiple time zones, had planned days off. During those days off, crews were able to explore the local area in a variety of ways. Some chose to visit local historic sites or the neighborhood around the hotel, and occasionally there was time to go on sightseeing tours, play golf, or jump on a moped to tour around the area. Locations commonly visited, such as Butterworth, became so familiar the crews developed favorite stores and restaurants and bars. In Penang, Malaysia, there was an alleyway filled with outdoor market stalls which was well known as Thieves' Alley. And much perfume, curry powder, jewelry, and clothing was purchased there. And that was often followed with a roti and a curry at the Craven Cafe. And in later years, many evenings were had at the Hong Kong Bar in the Georgetown District. That lifestyle appealed to most C-130 crew members, and the globe-trotting nature of the profession imbued them with good memories and camaraderie. I'm now going to switch topics, and we're going to talk about search and rescue. The acronym for search and rescue is SAR. So we'll briefly talk about what C-130s have been called upon to do for SAR missions. 
and a basic mission would go something like this. Someone would alert the civilian authorities that there was a missing person or boat. If the civilian agency couldn't do the search, in other words, there wasn't a nearby ship or a coastal aircraft, then the search and rescue coordinator at Air Command would get a call and a task would be raised for C-130 or P-3s if it made more sense to send a P-3. Usually in the case of an East Coast search and rescue, C-130s made more sense because they were nearby. It also made sense to use a C-130 if it was going to be a long search or if the missing person or boat was hours out to sea where a helicopter couldn't reach it. An aircraft might have already been on task or it would have been at Richmond and there might have been a crew on standby ready to be called out. Quite often there would be a quick runaround to try and find some observers and these people would be brought on board to help with visual searches. The C-130 would take smoke markers to aid in identifying the spot to drop a life raft, and we'll talk about that in a future podcast, or to help vector another aircraft onto the site of the missing person or the boat. The C-130 would then go to the likely location and begin some sort of search pattern. And a couple of those patterns were called an expanding square. In other words, you would start at a last known location and basically fly an expanding square pattern to try and find the missing person or boat. Or they might have flown a track crawl, which was flying along a known line of travel for whatever boat was missing. And there were other patterns as well. If they found the missing person or boat, they would drop a life raft or supplies and then vector authorities to the site. And we'll talk about the technique used for life raft drops in a later episode. I should point out that in the early 1960s, C-130s were not expected to conduct search and rescue missions. They were only sporadically called upon to do so back then. But there was an expectation that the ADF would support civilian agencies who managed Australia's search and rescue region. That SAR region encompasses 11% of the surface of the Earth. In time, C-130s were tasked with holding SAR standby out of Richmond, a task that they shared with P-3s at Edinburgh. However, there were very few search and rescue missions assigned to 36 Squadron prior to the mid-1960s. Today we'll cover two of the earliest SARs, but in reverse chronological order. On 21 December 1963, Flying Officer Norsworthy of 3 Squadron experienced multiple emergencies shortly after taking off from Butterworth in his Sabre, A94-974. He ejected at 10,000 feet and landed in the sea about 10 nautical miles north of Penang. Fortunately for him, Flight Lieutenant Walker was at Butterworth with his C-130A, having just completed the first half of a sea courier. Walker and his crew responded to the urgent call for a SAR mission, and they found Norsworthy, thereby facilitating his rescue. That was a very basic SAR mission. They knew roughly where to look, and I imagine they were aided by sighting the wreckage in the sea, as well as probably seeing a colored life jacket, or maybe a life raft. Let's get on to an amazing SAR story that C-130As helped with. On the 18th of November, 1961, Michael Rockefeller was sailing off the south coast of Dutch New Guinea, which was later known as West Papua or Erie Jaya. Michael was the son of the well-known and affluent Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York. Michael was a Harvard graduate with a penchant for primitive art. His interest took him to Dutch New Guinea, where he collected many pieces for his Museum of Primitive Art, which he opened in 1957. He was traveling with his companions, anthropologist René Wassing and two Papuan guides. And while doing so, Michael's makeshift catamaran capsized in heavy seas a few miles from shore. Despite the risk of crocodile-infested waters, 
the two Papuan guides jumped into the sea and swam for the shore. Rene and Michael elected not to do that. They stayed on the upturned hull for two days in the sweltering heat, slowly drifting out to sea. When they had drifted to somewhere between 5 or 10 nautical miles from land, Michael decided he would rather swim for help than slowly starve to death at sea. He strapped a boy and an empty fuel can to himself and he jumped in the water and started swimming for the distant shoreline. Turns out, a small aircraft showed up overhead Rene later that day and spotted Rene on the upturned hull. That aircraft departed and returned to drop a dinghy for him. Dutch authorities rescued Rene the next day and launched a major search for Michael. The ADF supported this search, and on the 1st of December, almost two weeks after the catamaran capsized, Flight Lieutenant Roger Bateson, who was later Commanding Officer 37 Squadron, left Richmond as the captain of A-97-211. He and his crew carried two Army helicopters to help with the search and participated in searching for Michael. Despite the extensive search, Rockefeller was never found, and he was presumed drowned at sea. But... Later research revealed that Michael likely made it to shore near Otsenyet in Dutch New Guinea, an area known for cannibalism. Missionaries from the area later attested that Michael was killed by villagers and eaten. That was a pretty amazing search and rescue story, but there are even more amazing SAR stories yet to come in future podcasts. And that is a wrap for today. In the next episode, we'll talk about Confrontazi with Bob Wheeler. That was one of the first operations in which C-130As were put into a combat environment. Thanks for listening, and if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. You can find this podcast on all the usual platforms, and also on my website, spartanspirit.au. That's one word, spartanspirit.au. And you can find updated information about the Air Mobility Workhorse book. Thanks for listening.